Section 13 of That Affair at Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That Affair at Elizabeth by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 22. Light at Last. I sank back into my chair, overcome by such a flood of relief and thankfulness that I could not speak. But Dr. Schuller laboured under no such disability. I cannot understand, he said, and I saw by his flushed face that he was genuinely angry. How you could have got the preposterous idea that Marshal Lawrence was connected in any way with this affair. Any sane man would have seen the utter absurdity of such a theory. I see it now, I assented hoarsely. Why, Marshal Lawrence could no more be concerned in a thing like that, he went on hotly, than, than a babe unborn. She could not be concerned in anything wrong, or mean, or criminal. I want you to understand, Mr. Lester, that she's absolutely spotless. If you knew her, I shouldn't need to tell you. I've always believed it, I protested. In my heart of hearts, I've always believed it. We've been fools. We've been trying to make two things fit which didn't fit. We imagined they must fit because they happened so close together. I see now that it was merely a coincidence, and I'm glad from the very bottom of my heart. You believed, then, that Miss Lawrence was really concerned in this murder? We thought her the active party in it. The active party? But on what grounds? We thought the dead man was her husband, an adventurer who'd lured her into a marriage while she was abroad. You'll remember I mentioned this theory to you the other night. Yes, and I told you at the time how ridiculous I thought it. I've never wholly believed it, I repeated. It wasn't mine, but it seemed to fit the facts so perfectly, and when you intimated this afternoon, as I thought, that Miss Lawrence was subject to spells of insanity, I imagined that I understood the whole story. He sat for a moment silent, regarding me from half-closed eyes. I saw that he was considering whether he should speak or remain silent. "'I hope this mistake has gone no farther,' he said at last. "'No,' I answered, and genuinely thankful I was that I could say so. I kept it absolutely to myself. He breathed a sigh of relief. Then no harm has been done. I'm glad of that. I see that you're glad, too. Yes, I said, I am, more glad than I can say. And now that you understand the matter, he continued, I suppose you see it in a different light. In a different light? At least you'll hardly advise now that I keep silent. By no means, I asserted heartily. I think it is clearly your duty to tell all you know. You will absolve Harriet Kingdom from responsibility for her act, as you said, changing loathing to pity. Besides, if the dead man deserved death, let the world know it. I don't know that he did, corrected my companion. I know nothing about him. But you suspect, I prompted. Perhaps I do, he admitted, but suspicion uttered is such a deadly thing. What I do know came to me in the way so many things come to a minister. I was asked for advice. I received a confidence. He stopped and pondered for a moment. I came very near telling you night before last, he continued, when you were asking me about the Kingdons, telling you at least as much as I could without violating that confidence. But on second thought I did not see that any good would come of it, and so kept silent. Now circumstances absolve me from any obligation of secrecy, and I can speak freely. I told you the other evening that John Kingdon had died in an asylum for the insane, and that his family had a hard struggle for existence. After the mother's death they had no means to maintain a home, and Lucy, who was only a girl, went to the Lawrence house to help her cousin, Ruth Endicott, who was housekeeper there, as I have said. The elder daughter, Harriet, secured a position in New York, I think as governess in a private family. She was called home some time later by the illness of her cousin Ruth, whom she took to Florida, where Ruth died. Mr. Lawrence was married soon afterwards, and Lucy Kingdon remained in his house as maid, first to his wife and afterwards to his daughter. Harriet Kingdon returned to New York and took up again her work of teaching. 
About six months later there was a quarrel of some sort between her and her sister Lucy, a violent quarrel, and they ceased to correspond or hold communication of any kind. Just how long a time elapsed I don't know, but I should judge it was at least three years, when a letter came to Lucy Kingdon from Bloomingdale Hospital, stating that her sister had been brought there a year before, violently insane, that she was practically well again, and wished to be taken away. Lucy went after her at once and brought her home. "'Home?' I repeated. "'Yes, it was at that time that Mrs. Lawrence gave them the cottage in which they still live. She virtually supported them for some time, until Harriet was able to attend to the household duties, and Lucy to resume her place as maid. Was Mr. Lawrence living at the time? Yes, but it was generally understood that he had no part in these benefactions. He was not a charitable man. And no reason was ever given for this generosity on Mrs. Lawrence's part. None but her interest in the family. This was only one of her many charities.' I paused for a moment's thought. After all, there was nothing peculiar about it. Mrs. Lawrence would naturally be interested in a family whom she had known so well, and who had suddenly been reduced to such desperate straits. "'Did you ever hear any explanation of Harriet Kingdon's madness?' I asked at last. "'None but that of heredity, and that is an explanation I made to myself. I'm pretty sure that no one here except her sister and Mrs. Lawrence knew that she had been at Bloomingdale.' "'Mrs. Lawrence knew it, then?' Oh, yes, it was from her I learned the story. She came to me for advice a few months after Harriet Kingdon had been brought home. I don't think she was ever wholly cured. She had slight relapses from time to time, and it was during one of these, rather more violent than usual, that Mrs. Lawrence came to me. I made an excuse for going to see her, but I saw no reason for advising that she be sent to an asylum. I did advise, however, that a specialist be brought down from New York to look at her, and Mrs. Lawrence did this. He also advised against the asylum— he said that rest and quiet and freedom from worry would in time afford permanent relief. She certainly grew better as time went on, and, though she was always somewhat peculiar, I have regarded her as wholly out of danger of relapse for several years past. And yet, I objected, harking back, heredity of itself would hardly be sufficient explanation. There must have been something to induce insanity, some shock or grave trouble. Yes, I agree with you there. I have a theory, Mr. Lester, which some chance words of yours this afternoon served greatly to strengthen— you remember you remarked that a recurrence of insanity would be very likely if the circumstances attending it were related in any way to the original cause. My theory is that this man whom Harriet Kingdon killed was the cause of her insanity, that he'd wronged her. Yes, I agreed, yes. And yet how explain his presence here? If he'd wronged her, he'd hardly seek her again. I don't know, there are queer depths in human nature. Unfortunately, I see no way of proving the theory either right or wrong, of putting it to the test not at least until Lucy Kingdon recovers and chooses to speak. I think I can put it to the test, I said, if you'll permit me to lay it before a friend. I must tell you, though, that he's a reporter, and if the theory proves to be the right one, he'll use it. I see no objection to that, said Dr. Schuller, after a moment's thought, provided, of course, that he doesn't use it unless it's fully proved. I can promise that, I said. And whether it proves right or wrong, I should like to know. You shall, at the first moment. And by the way, I added, you were speaking the other evening of Ruth Endicott. There is a rather remarkable portrait belonging to the Kingdons which has her name in the corner. Yes, I've seen it. Did she really paint it? Oh, I think there's no doubt of that. Did she paint anything else? She painted three or four crude portraits for people here in town, but they've long since been banished to the garret, where they belong. She had talent, but she lacked training. She interests me somehow, I said. I don't know why. Is the portrait a good one? It isn't a portrait, it's rather an impression of her. As an impression, it's very good. He opened his mouth as though to say something more, then thought better of it. You haven't told me yet, he added, as I rose to go, 
whether you've heard anything more from Miss Lawrence. Today's tragedy has so far outdone yesterday's that I nearly forgot to ask you. I believe she's out in mid-ocean now, I said, and related briefly the incident of the telegram, and of Burr Curtis's starting in pursuit. He'll meet her at Liverpool, I concluded, and they can fight out their battle there. Yes, he nodded. God grant they find it not too bitter. Godfrey was awaiting me at the hotel, and I told him in detail of Dr. Schuller's revelation, pointing out at the same time, not without some obvious exultation, how at a breath it overthrew his elaborately developed theory. "'Well, we're all liable to make mistakes at times,' he said good-humouredly. "'Now that we're on the right track, I don't think there'll be much difficulty in working the whole thing out. "'Dr. Schuller hopes you'll be able to, and so do I, though I don't see just how you're going to do it. "'Oh, I think I'll be able to do it. You see, we've got a starting point now. "'But I'll have to go to New York. Won't you come along?' "'I was tempted. "'How long will it take?' I asked. "'Not over three or four hours. You ought to get to bed by midnight, and you can come down in the morning for the inquest.' I saw that he wanted me. The temptation was too strong to be resisted. An hour later we were in the office of the Bloomingdale Asylum. "'It was about twenty years ago that Miss Kingdon was admitted,' said Godfrey to the chief physician, whose interest he had enlisted, and who had been busy getting out the records. And she remained here about a year before she was discharged as cured. "'There oughtn't to be any trouble finding it,' said the chief. "'In fact, there ought to be a voluminous record of a case like that. Let me see. Kingdon. Kingdon.' and he ran his finger down an index. "'No, I don't see it. This covers five years. Perhaps she was registered under another name,' I suggested. "'Yes, that's very likely,' Godfrey admitted. "'May I see the record, doctor? Perhaps I'll be able to pick her out. Cases that stay here that length of time aren't very common, are they?' "'No, they're rather exceptional. Besides, twenty years ago we hadn't so many as we have today.' Godfrey was examining the index. If there's no other way, we can sift out the cases which answer in a general way to the one we want, and investigate all of them. But I hope that won't be necessary. Let me see. F. G. H. There was an inquiry the other day about a case which was a good deal like yours, only that was for an Italian woman, a Harriet Pareo. Godfrey's lips were twitching, and his finger trembled a little as he ran it down the column of names, but when he spoke his tone was the most casual. "'Yes,' he said, "'here she is, Harriet Pareo. "'She was brought here from West 27th Street.' "'And he named the number. "'Not a very savoury locality, is it, doctor? "'No, though one can't tell what it was twenty years ago.' "'That's true. "'I don't suppose you remember anything about her. "'No, I wasn't here at that time.' "'Godfrey was still running down the column of names "'and was seemingly little interested in the Pareo case. "'The husband rather impressed me,' went on the chief.' rather a handsome fellow in his day, but now evidently a wreck, and a perfect brute morally, or so I judge. "'What did he want?' inquired Godfrey negligently. "'He wanted to know what had become of her. I thought it peculiar he should have waited so long to make inquiries. Were you able to help him out?' "'Oh, yes, our records give the history of every case.' Godfrey closed the index, evidently disappointed. "'I don't see any trace here of the case I'm looking for,' he said. "'Maybe she didn't come here after all.' but I should like to look at the records, doctor, just out of curiosity. This Pareo case, now. The chief pulled a big ledger down from a shelf, referred to a number in the index, and opened the book. Here it is, he said. You see, she was suffering from emotional insanity. Homicidal mania, stayed nearly a year, was very violent at first, gradually grew better, and was finally discharged as cured. Her sister, Miss Lucy Kingdon— Why, wasn't that the name you were looking for? Yes, and this is the case. Please go ahead, doctor. The chief looked at him for a moment in astonishment, then turned back to his book. "'Her sister, Miss 
Lucy Kingdon of Elizabeth, New Jersey, was notified at her request, he continued, and came after her. There have been no reports since. That's all we need to know, said Godfrey, permitting some of his satisfaction to appear in his face. This record was shown to the husband, I suppose. Yes, I had no reason for refusing to show it. Most certainly not, agreed Godfrey, and I must compliment you, doctor, on the very thorough way in which your records are kept. Come, Lester, we haven't any time to lose. Our chain is complete in every link, he added, when we were in our cab again, rattling westward across the city. Nothing can break it. All we need now is to learn the story of the Padeos. And that's what we're going after? Yes, but it's a chance. Twenty years in a neighborhood like that are certain to work great changes. It's a long chance. Ten to one there'll be nobody there who remembers Padeo. And he was right. The block in which was the number we saw it had been converted into a street-car barn. There were no longer any Italians in the neighborhood. It had become an outskirt of the Negro quarter. Godfrey took out his watch and glanced at it. Lester, he said, I'm sorry, but I'll have to leave you. I've got to set my subterranean machinery to work, and I'm afraid I can't take you with me, much as I'd like to. The agents I'll have to use are shy of strangers. Besides, I see you're getting sleepy. Yes, I confessed, I am. I don't see how you hold up so well. Good night, then, and good luck. I hope you'll win out. Oh, I shall, he said confidently. You take the cab. I'll use the elevated. It's quicker, and every moment counts. And he waved me good-bye. End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 The Story It was not until I unfolded my record at the breakfast-table next morning that I fully appreciated Godfrey's tremendous activity. I had always known, of course, that he was energetic, indefatigable, and fertile of expedient, but his results, remarkable as they often were, were usually achieved with such apparent ease that I had never suspected the extent of the downright hard work which lay back of them. Now, as I looked over the paper before me, I understood and wondered. I had left him at ten o'clock the night before, with the mystery still unsolved and seemingly unsolvable, for the only clue in his possession had led him to a blank wall. Yet here before me was the story. An entire page was devoted to it, and an astonishing story it was, written with verve and vividness, complete in every detail, and illustrated with photographs and sketches of all the scenes and characters. There was the Kingdon cottage, the grave in the cellar, the Kingdon sisters, the murdered man, the pearl-handled revolver, even the coroner and the chief of police. Many of the photographs had, of course, been collected the day before, and some of them, no doubt, had been used in the afternoon edition. But here they were, welded into a homogeneous whole, complete and satisfying. I could fancy the city editors of the other morning papers turning green with envy as they read it. And looking at the story, I understood, more clearly than I had ever done, the wide appeal of the yellow press. It paid for the best talent in the market. It handled its matter in a way to attract attention. It told its stories in a style incisive and easily comprehensible, and added the visual appeal of pictures which gave the supreme touch of reality. And it got the news. Abstractedly, I am anything but an admirer of the yellow press. Concretely, I have often found that to get the last detail of any event— more especially of any event with a sensational or mysterious side, I must have recourse to its columns, just as I had recourse to them now. As I read on, I marvelled more and more at the system which rendered possible the securing of all these details in so short a time. Subterranean, Godfrey had called it. Superhuman, I would have said, and I determined that he should some day introduce me to it. He had run down Pareo, unmasked him, laid him bare in all his treachery and vileness, the whole sordid, terrible story lay revealed, and as I thought of Harriet Kingdon's sufferings and abasement, I did not wonder that she had shot down the brute who was trying to drag her back to them. Some of the details I knew Godfrey must have filled in for himself, since there could be no way of verifying them at this late day, 
but they fitted so closely with the rest of the structure that there could be no doubt of their essential truthfulness. Such, for instance, was the detail of their meeting. Padeo had been a teacher of music, and Godfrey shrewdly guessed that he must have met Harriet Kingdon and become acquainted with her at the house where she was employed as governess. The rest of the story could be easily built up. He was a handsome and magnetic fellow, she a passionate and attractive woman. He had struck a chord in her which she could not but obey. He had seemed then to have a future before him. The brave exterior gave no hint of the rottenness within. He had that grandiloquent way of speaking of the future which is characteristic of the Latin races, that sublime faith in himself which needed no justification. He had impressed himself upon her as a genius who would one day astonish the world, and if he had certain assertive peculiarities which jarred disagreeably at times, why, was not all genius so? She began by admiring him, she ended by yielding to him. No doubt she fancied that she was hitching her wagon to a star. Whether there had been a marriage was not certain. Godfrey believed there had been. At any rate, Pareo had introduced her to his friends as his wife, and for a time all went well. Then the devil in the man cropped out. He was naturally indolent. He quit teaching under the pretext that he wished to compose a masterpiece, and forced her to support him. No doubt she even yet believed in him, but he dragged her down to depths unspeakable, trampling her into the very mire of the Italian colony. At last he brought his real wife from Italy to live with him. This swarthy vixen had added new torments to the unfortunate girl's position, had devised new insults for her, and the end had been Bloomingdale. Up to the very last, such was the nature of the woman she had continued to love the man, contented to be his dog, his slave, for the privilege of being near him. Doubtless all this time her mind was weakening, and she clung to him out of old habit. But with the sudden accession of madness, hate had blazed up in her, white-hot, and she had attempted to stab him. He had called the police, and she had been dragged away, cursing, shrieking, a spectacle to shake the strongest nerves. It was in that struggle that he had lost the end of his little finger. She had seized it between her teeth and bitten it clean through. From a woman she had changed into a monster. But insanity of this type usually yields to treatment, and though Harriet Kingdon's case proved to be of unusual obstinacy, patience and careful nursing triumphed in the end, and reason was restored to her restored, that is, as life is restored to a man stricken with heart disease, resting not on the firm foundation of assured health, but on a delicate balance which any shock may disturb. Not until she was ready to leave the asylum did her sister know her whereabouts. I doubt if she ever knew the whole story of the sufferings which went before. She had come for her, had taken her back to Elizabeth, to the home which Mrs. Lawrence's kindness and generosity had provided. The Pareos had remained with the Italian colony, sinking lower and lower. Pareo, driven by his wife, the target of her abuse now that she no longer had any other, endeavoured to resume his teaching, but he had so coarsened in habits and appearance that the old doors were shut to him. Still he managed to scrape along, always on the verge of want. Then, in a fortunate hour, his wife had been run down and killed by a trolley-car. He managed to exact damages for her death, and for the moment found himself in affluence. It was at this time that his thoughts turned to Harriet Kingdom. Why? It is impossible to say. Perhaps he felt some revival of his old passion for her. Perhaps he may even have had some twinges of remorse. More probably he realized that he was growing old. He wanted someone to wait on him and slave for him, someone upon whom he could wreck his gusts of passion. He had always believed himself irresistible to women. He knew the dog-like devotion which Harriet Kingdon had had for him. He believed that he had only to speak the word, and she would crawl back to him. But he would do more than that. He would be generous. He would offer to make her really his wife. Magnificent! Could she refuse such an offer as that? The wife of Pareo! 
So he had made inquiries at the asylum, had learned her address, and had taken the train for Elizabeth on the morning of that fatal 10th of June. He had made his way to the Kingdon cottage, had found Harriet Kingdon there alone, had entered, seated himself familiarly, perhaps attempted some endearment. He was confident, self-satisfied. It was better than he had hoped. Here was a comfortable home ready for him, a wife who seemed to be making a good living. If it should be necessary, he could no doubt find many pupils at Elizabeth, and if the pay was not quite metropolitan, why, neither was the work. Here was a golden future. Yes, he would be generous, she should be his wife, he would forget all that had happened. But the sight of him had brought back the memory of her old infamy, which her attack of madness in the years had partially blotted out. The cloud rolled down upon her brain again, that white hate leapt to life. She snatched up her revolver and shot him through the heart, even as he sat there confidently smiling. Then, with a strength born of insanity, she had dragged him to the cellar and dug a grave for him there. The story was strong in every link. There could be no doubting it. Not until the inquest was finished, and we entered the train together to return to New York, did I get the chance to talk quietly with Godfrey. "'You did great work,' I said, as we sat down together. "'Yes,' he agreed, smiling. "'I was pleased with it myself. The story developed beautifully.' and clearly even the coroner's jury couldn't question it there's no possibility now of anyone associating this affair with miss lawrence's disappearance if it had to happen i'm glad that it happened just when it did it served to make the public forget the other mystery i'm pleased for another reason i added lucy kingdon won't be called upon to tell that story on the stand i don't like her nor trust her but i'm glad she'll be spared that ordeal it would have been a trying one godfrey agreed the coroner tells me that she's very ill I feel guilty in a way. I should have prepared her for that horror in the cellar. I shouldn't have taken her without warning to the brink of that grave. That wasn't the only cause of her illness, I said. She had sins of her own on her conscience. I don't understand even yet, I added, why that face should affect her so. She couldn't have recognized it since she'd never seen Pareo. How do you know she never saw him? I'm decidedly inclined to think she had, that he was the cause of that violent quarrel between her and her sister which Dr. Schuller mentioned. Lucy Kingdon, looking at the man clear-eyed, saw him as he was and tried to dissuade her sister from the entanglement. The elder woman, blinded by passion, wouldn't listen, and the quarrel followed, in which both, no doubt, used words which they afterwards regretted. Yes, I agreed, perhaps you're right. Even if she'd never seen him, Godfrey added, she must have suspected who it was. There was only one man in the world whom her sister was capable of killing. Or she might have imagined that it was someone else. There's been nothing in all this, Lester, to disprove my original theory about Miss Lawrence. Godfrey, I said impulsively, I'm going to disprove it once and for all. Look at this. And I thrust into his hands the photograph Burr Curtis had entrusted to me. He gazed at it for some moments in silence. At last he handed it back to me. Do you believe that theory now? I asked. No, he answered, and sat staring straight before him, his lips compressed. I knew you'd say so, I said. I knew you'd see how impossible it was that there should be any shameful secret in her life. I wavered once or twice when every discovery we made seemed to confirm your theory, but I never really believed it. I'd only to recall this photograph. Why didn't you show it to me before, he asked. Candidly, Godfrey, I answered, crimsoning a little. I... I don't know. Oh, yes, you do, he retorted. You were afraid I'd chin it out of you. Well, yes, I was, I admitted. He looked at me curiously for a moment. "'I see you don't know me very well even yet, Lester,' he said at last. "'I'm sorry you didn't let me see it. It would have saved me a wild goose chase. <laughs> but then,' he added with a grim little laugh, "'I might not have stumbled upon this second tragedy. So perhaps it was as well after all. I forgive you.' "'You think the photograph would have made the mystery clearer?' I asked. 
Clearer? he echoed. My dear Lester, it makes it more unexplainable than ever. It converts it from a vulgar intrigue into the most puzzling problem I ever had to deal with. I was staring at him in astonishment. I don't see how it can do that, I protested. Don't you? Well, I'll tell you. I've already pointed out to you that, so far as I could see, my theory was the only conceivable one which would explain Marshal Lawrence's flight. I look at that photograph and see at once that I must throw that theory aside. What have I left? Nothing. That photograph shows me a pure, cultured, innocent woman. I know that she loved devotedly the man she was to marry. Yet she deliberately deserts him. I should say it was incredible if I didn't know it was true. Then, I said, while we've solved one mystery, the other is as deep as ever. Deeper, he corrected, miles deeper. In fact, it hasn't any bottom at all that I can see. And he sank back into his seat again, a deep line between his eyebrows. End of chapter 23 End of section 13